Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that puts the lit into political, the okay into jokes, and the oh god, why would you do this as an intro, it's so, so tenuous, into the minds of all the listeners. This is episode 106, I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week I've taken initiative from Prime Minister Theresa, say my name three times into a mirror and I will appear May, as, like the NHS, both my parents are turning 70 this year, and I think the present of a £20 billion Brexit dividend is the perfect gift for them as well. All I have to do is write an empty promise in a card and hopefully they won't notice as I take larger and larger amounts of their own money over the next 10 years. Happy birthday parents! Yes, it seems the very good news that the NHS is going to be allocated a lot of necessary money is then ruined by the news that some of that money will be coming from a source that definitely doesn't exist, no matter how big the transport vehicle you write it on the side of is. But May insists that Brexit dividends will fund the NHS, just like the Vote Leave campaign said it would, and then months later said it wouldn't because it wasn't true, and then months later Foreign Secretary and Silagefield dinghy Boris Johnson said actually was true, before he then said it wasn't and then was again, and now the Prime Minister says it's definitely still a thing, even though economists, journalists and anyone that's ever read anything has said it's definitely, definitely not. So if that's what the NHS is relying on, then I'd be more reassured if the government announced it'd be funded by a golden goose that was fed from a constantly refilling bowl of porridge and lived in a magic money tree. But as May said in a speech today at the Royal Free Hospital, the NHS commitment goes beyond the Brexit dividend. Way! Wait, what does that mean? Will every ward get a fairy godmother and a bucket of magic cream as well? Ah, no, wait, sorry, what May meant was that it will also be funded by tax rises. But it will, she promises, be in a fair and balanced way. So that likely means the British public will be funding all of it, while corporations and millionaires, not so much. And hey, maybe that's fine, as paying more tax to save the NHS is popular in public opinion, and it's unlikely those with the most money use it anyway, because we all know they stay healthy by bathing in the blood of orphans, or something like that. Or maybe it just means that the human-sized manticore Richard Branson will use 
use the extra cash his companies aren't spending on the NHS to spend it on lawyers so he can sue the NHS for even more money before taking it all into space with him to con aliens into buying leftover cans of virgin cola. Who knows? What I do know is that as a fellow glucose intolerant being, as I heard May say in her speech that the NHS helped her with her diabetes and that she would not be able to do her job today without that support, I thought for the first time ever, hey, maybe the NHS is not so good after all. Shadow Chancellor and Captain of Sea Lab 2020, John McDonnell, said in an interview that if Labour made a similar policy, there'd be accusations of a magic money tree. So May's announcement is technically a magic money forest. Which I don't think is right, John. Actually, if she had a magic money forest, she'd have sold it off by now or allowed fracking to take place underneath it and then told the public it was their fault and they'd have to pay twice as much to buy the money harvest back. Actually, I think this policy of May's could be quite sincere. I mean, it doesn't sound sincere, but I'm swayed by the fact that the NHS is now 70, so they might start to pay a bit more attention to it now it's in the Conservatives' top voting age. Speaking of false promises about Brexit, Theresa May persuaded Tory rebels to vote against MP and unidentified Imperial General No. 4 Dominic Greaves' amendment about a meaningful parliamentary vote on the final deal because she said a government amendment would cover that. Instead, though, the government amendment that she promised actually amounts to just letting Parliament say what they think and then the government will consider that statement before mainly blowing raspberries at them and telling them that no one cares and why don't they all poo off. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but even in an interview on BBC One's The Andrew Marshow, May said that Parliament cannot tie the hands of government, seemingly not understanding the entire point of Parliament. I mean, they should, in theory, be able to tie hands and feet of the government and go full-on Fifty Shades of Grey if they want, because otherwise they're just an audience watching you tie yourselves up, which is far, far more niche. After voting to spend only 12 hours discussing the EU withdrawal bill because there's nothing that upholds British values than not leaving enough time for the fate of the country because you need to make last orders, the government rejected all of the Lords' amendments to the EU withdrawal bill, meaning that it goes back to the Lords this week, then back again to the Commons with further thoughts and amendments, and ultimately it could just be that the plan is to forego the usual eight stages of back and forth and just do a parliamentary version of Eisner versus Mahut and argue until someone keels over or we all miss all possible deadlines or both. Conservative minister and man who regularly looks like he's being held hostage in all of his photos, Philip Lee, resigned from his position on the morning before the vote because he thought ministers should have a greater say over Brexit. But then he abstained on the actual vote. Great work, Philip. You couldn't have made less of a point. I mean, I'm wondering if he just really didn't like his job. You know, it's a bit like saying you're quitting working for Amazon because of the way they treat their staff and then you apply to work for Sports Direct. The Labour leadership told the party to abstain on the vote for the amendment to keep the UK in the EEA, and as a result of that whip, six Labour MPs quit the front bench, prompting many to realise they had absolutely no idea they were on the front bench in the first place because it's such a fluid system that Labour may as well replace it with a Yo Sushi conveyor belt. At least then, half the time, you'd get a few things that you want. Five out of the six voted for the amendment, but one, Laura Smith, a woman whose smile looks like you'd only see it seconds before she gnawed off one of your legs, wanted to vote against it. It seems Labour is not so much a broad church as just a collection of people who begrudgingly have to hang out. Yes, they are the school playground parents of politics. Saying that though, thousands or tens or tens of thousands of Labour supporters, depending on which account you read and which pictures you look at, attended Labour Live on Saturday in Tottenham, a festival put on by the party and featuring such artists as The Magic Numbers and Clean Bandit, because it seems Labour are excellent at scoring own goals about their politics, even with the names of their favourite bands. I mean, hey, why not just go all out and book cults, the Manic Street Preachers and 80s Japanese punk band The Starlin? 
Many criticised Labour giving away free tickets to the event in the week beforehand due to low sales, but they had a sizeable crowd by Saturday evening. And that is impressive, and much better than Tory Glastonbury sounded back in September, which looked like the world's saddest gelée festival. I'm really not sure why political parties want to do festivals anyway, because nothing says, hey, here's our terrible vision for the future, like long queues for food and inadequate sanitary systems. Back in the Commons, Conservative MP and man who is to progress what salt is to slugs culinary repertoire, Christopher Chope, blocked, among others, a bill to make upskirting illegal, which is a bit like shouting, it wasn't me, to dispel suspicion when someone farts in a lift. Upskirting is when people, primarily men, in fact almost certainly only men, definitely, it's definitely just men, take photos up women's skirts without consent. Something that is offensive, vulgar, violating and definitely not what phone cameras are for, otherwise Apple events would be really, really hard to watch. Chope says he wholeheartedly supports there being a law against upskirting, with perpetrators gaining up to two years in prison if caught. But he just disapproved the process of private members' bills and, to be honest, didn't know what the term upskirting meant. I mean, that's probably because he refers to it as Chopey's fun snaps. Chope believes private members' bills shouldn't be a thing, as he says we aren't in Putin's Russia yet. True, Christopher, but considering you've also voted against gay marriage minimum wage and now to make sure sexual harassment isn't legal, I'd say that you see that less as something to avoid and more of an achievement target. Many women in Chope's constituency have protested by covering his office in their underwear, and that has got to be the first time a politician as useless as him has been assigned quite so many briefs. Home Secretary and model for the comic relief Red Nose, Sajid Javid, is going to increase police powers to catch moped criminals after having his phone snatched outside Euston Station. Oh, wait, is that how it works? Oh, well, in which case, fingers crossed that Chris Grayling gets stuck at a train station for three days, Jeremy Hunt ends up in A&E, and Boris Johnson gets arrested in Iran because someone lied about him. Across the pond, US President and oh no, I forgot that was in the fridge and oh, that's what's causing that smell, Donald Trump, has directed the Pentagon to create a sixth military branch called the Space Force. Of course, a Space Force is totally unnecessary as Trump has already successfully conquered the vacuous. The first prisoner of the US, Melania, has commented on the immigration crisis at the Mexican border where many children are being snatched from parents by Border Patrol and put in cages in a truly, truly upsetting situation. Melania said she hates to see children separated from their families at borders, which is probably why she hasn't visited the area. Melania said the onus is on both sides to fix the situation. And yet, of course, I mean, there's nothing easier than holding your hands up and saying, we need to meet halfway on this, you know, when you're stuck in indefinite detainment with no idea of where your kids are. I'd love to see Melania as a hostage negotiator. No, I don't think the police need to be here. It's up to the gunman and his hostages to sort it out between them and meet in the middle. Lastly, David Dimbleby is retiring from hosting the BBC's political panel programme Question Time at the end of the year. I understand that in order to keep the same feel to the show, they will be replacing him with a robot that just shouts tagged tweets with increasing volume throughout, a barking dog and a man continuously hitting a bin with a spoon. And the World Cup started last week with host nations Russia beating Saudi Arabia, a surprisingly victory considering that the Saudi goalkeeper had all those extra arms sold to him by England. I understand Russia don't actually want to do well in the tournament, they just want to influence the other teams enough so that there's an unexpected winner at the end that ultimately goes on to ruin football for everyone. England won their first match against Morocco, scoring a second goal in the last few minutes because there's nothing more British than making everyone panic that you've screwed it up until it's almost too late. And the World Cup 2026 has been awarded jointly to Canada, USA and Mexico in what I think may be the most expensive and long-term trolling of Donald Trump and his border control that I've ever heard. Amazing work. Hello you. Welcome to another episode of this, uh, wait for it, <clears throat> Observer Recommended Podcast. 
What? What? Yeah, that's right. This little audio mess was included in the top ten political podcasts, according to The Observer this week, which I was hugely chuffed by, um, especially uh, as uh, this podcast was in there alongside some real faves of mine, the host of one of which is this week's interviewee, but more on that in a minute. So, look, if you're a new listener who's arrived here because of that, then uh, hello, thanks for listening, and I'm sorry, I don't know why they put us in there either. I guess they just had a word count to fill. Don't be too disappointed. Um, so that was one bit of selfish me news from the past weekend. Uh, very exciting. Uh, the other is that on Friday, I did a gig for Justice Mexico Now, which is a charity that campaigns uh, against the human rights abuses happening in Mexico. And the event on Friday was to raise money for international electoral observers to the election in July. Um, it's a situation I knew nothing about. And having now been reading up on it, it is really terrifying. 116 politicians have been killed in the last year alone as part of the current government's attempts to stay in power. I mean, that really puts UK politics into perspective, right? Um, I'm hoping to hopefully get someone from the campaign on to talk about it in a future episode um, because uh, it's a horrible mess and it was quite hard to do um, comedy about it uh, when you follow someone that's talking all about that and you have to go on stage after and go, hey, let's do some jokes. Um, I managed to talk about how when I was a child I thought a flotilla was a type of Mexican dish which years later then led to ultimate disappointment when I heard that the Queen would be coming down the Thames on a flotilla and she arrived on a boat. What a mess. Anyway, um, the show uh, itself was very good fun uh, with Francesca Martinez, Jeremy Hardy, Matt Abbott and Maria Ferguson, both of whom are brilliant poets and then there were others and musicians and speakers. And Then in the middle was surprise guest, uh, Labour leader and mouse who shaved around the eyes, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who hosted an auction. So I had to introduce Corbyn onto stage, which I did uh, by saying he was an open spot and they were very much risking having him on as I didn't think he'd spoken to a crowd before uh, and that went down well. Anyway, um, I'd say Corbyn was very friendly. His auctioning was excellent and uh, surprisingly funny. He did some quite good improv gags um, and he sold two pots of his own jam for quite a lot of money. Um, I said to him afterwards that they were obviously innovative jams and he gave me uh, quite a funny look. Uh, I wasn't entirely sure if he found that funny. Anyway, I do know that he liked my Saudi Arabia World Cup joke that I've stuck in this one and I have no news on how he felt about all the Brexit gags I did, which is a shame, isn't it? Anyway, it is funny though uh, because there were quite a lot of questions I wanted to ask him but firstly I was hosting so I was rarely off stage and secondly he was having a night off and enjoying the night and it was a charity that his wife's part of and it just felt kind of rude to sort of barge in and start pushing him for some sort of coherent chat about Labour's constantly vague Brexit stance or anything like that um, I'd say his jams look bloody good though and they sold for loads so if anything he really is proving Andrea led some right ultimately the moral of this not very exciting political encounter is that I can confirm he is indeed a person and he exists in the real life uh, should any of you not be entirely sure of that um, and it's those sorts of grey day tales that lead nowhere in a manner exactly opposite to Serial or S-Town that allow this show to be an observer rated one and obviously will move you the good people that listen to this to review the show on iTunes or Stitcher or one of those many apps um, a couple of people have told me they're having problems doing written reviews on Apple Podcast app and that is because spoiler it's shit it's, it's so shit but do complain and tell Apple however you do that um, I'm sure you have to like get a code word at a secret door and then you have to follow a series of clues before finding a solitary phone in an alleyway that you ring to speak to an automaton but 
it really does help the show to review it. Um, so please, please, please do give it a try if you have the time. Um, if you can as well, please do donate to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. Even $1 a month is a huge help. Uh, one US dollar that is because that's how Patreon works. And that is still, I checked, is about 75p or 6.4 Danish kroner. Uh, I thought that would be a bit exciting to do this week. And that probably can't buy you anything because it is crazy expensive in Denmark. And you're all like, hey, can I have some water? And they were like, hey, yes, but that will cost you your life savings and your firstborn because that's what it's like. Um, it's that Scandi Noir export market they have, I reckon. We'll see how economically comfortable they are once the last few episodes of The Bridge air in the UK. They'll have nothing left, I tell you. Nothing. Um, so, yeah, uh, please donate to the Patreon or, or if a monthly thang ain't your thang, um, then you could buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com forward slash bro, which is also hugely appreciated. Um, and both those links are on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website as well if you just want to click through that. Just click everywhere. Keep clicking until I get money. Sorry. Uh, just do what you like. Anyway, this podcast remains free, whatever. So if you can't do any of those things, then please just let people who might like this show know that it exists, despite what the flat podcasters may say. I bet that's a thing. I bet now I've said it, there are already people out there who deny podcasts exist, and they actually say it's just a series of voices in your head caused by the elite. Well, I can prove that wrong, because if that was true, and this was all caused by the elite, then my bank wouldn't hate me. Take that, fake news. PPB smashing down on truths every goddamn day. Um, more admin things this week for Yao. Um, in my talkings about Grenfell last week, I forgot to mention the excellent 24 Stories book, which is available via Penguin or Unbound Books, with all proceeds going to PTSD-related needs of those affected by the fire. Um, it's a collection of short tales by people like Irving Welsh, Kathy Burke, Mira Sayal, and excitedly, um, Kat Day, who uh, very kindly types up the linear notes for this show for the website every week and whose entry of the book is um, really, really moving and beautifully written. I'll be honest, I haven't read any of the other bits. I just read her bit and I thought it was wonderful. Um, I will get round to the rest of the book very soon. But do check it out. It looks absolutely brilliant. Um, also, my brother, The Last Skeptic, who provides the music for this show every week, as well as, in the last couple of weeks, making this sound uh, of this sound that you're hearing now, this one right here, he's making that a little bit louder for all of you who need this show at 11. Um, he has got an album out very soon, a new one. Um, and I know I mentioned this at the end of the show, most weeks but according to them stats a certain percentage of you always like to skip the end of the show because you know it's just too much for you i'm guessing and i understand that you know no one likes endings why not just stay in the middle of each episode and then it's like it never finishes i believe in you and your forever pod i believe in you anyway my brother's new album is called under the patio and has loads of amazing guests on it including koji radical michael payne doc brown and loads more and you can pre-order that and hear a number of tracks already if you have a bit of a look-see online and that is why I shouldn't promote hip-hop albums because who says look-see? Not any rappers, that is for sure. Um, and lastly, thank you to the lovely families that came to my new kids' show with Tatton Spiller at Simple Politics um, called How Does This Politics Thing Work Then? We had two lovely gigs at Farnham Maltings and the Underbelly Festival in South Bank this past weekend with children coming up after the show, all inspired by it, to ask us such insightful questions about politics such as things about Brexit or the NHS or if I actually really eat poo. Oh, it's adorable. Um, the next two shows are at the Old Fire Station in Oxford on Saturday the 23rd at 3pm and then Chipping Norton Theatre at 11.30am on the 30th of June. So if you live anywhere near any of those and 
you have children, please come along. Um, it's suitable for children seven plus, although I think we had a few weenier ones in there on Sunday who seemed to like it as well, and they proved that by occasionally running onto the stage when they weren't invited. Thanks, weenier ones. Um, tickets are way too available for those two uh, on the venue's website, so go check them out. Um, right, so uh, this week on the Observer Top 10 Podcast, <clears throat> it is a Swapcast. Swapcast Claxon, please. That's right, in the industry, by which I mean all of the lonely people recording podcasts by themselves in their rooms like me, that industry, a swapcast is when one podcast has a guest from another podcast on it, and this week I am smashing swapcasting in its audio chin by having a chat with Professor David Runciman, head of the Department of Politics at Cambridge University and host of the ever-excellent Talking Politics podcast, which is one of my favourite weekly listens. Um, I'm asking him all about his new book, How Democracy Ends, so I'm really excited for you to hear that. Uh, and I hope it doesn't confuse you as to which podcast you're listening to, whether you suddenly in the middle of it go, oh no, am I actually listening to Talking Politics instead of Partly Political Broadcast? Well, here is a tip, right? It's definitely my podcast, because on David's podcast, he only has chats with really clever people. So this week there is that, and also, just to ruin it, some Brexit fallout, and of course, a little bit of this before all of that. So, look, this NHS money promise from the government does sound good, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It sounds really nice. I mean, beyond all the completely insincere bits in May's speech about how the NHS helped her with her diabetes. And look, I'm not saying that the NHS didn't help her, right, because they obviously did. They've kept me alive with my diabetes for years now. I mean, I've just never seen May have to shove a Snickers in her gob mid-speech or have a Lucozade by her in PMQs just while she's doing a blood test. So it's bollocks. Anyway, beyond all those waffly bits, the announcement was that £20 billion extra pounds is going to the NHS, which is no pittance. I mean, if I got given an extra £20 billion pounds a year, I'd have a, I'd have a pretty good year, I'll be honest. I'd definitely buy full-fat milk and everything. As much as my general view of Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt is that he strikes me as someone who could get lost in a small room, getting the Treasury and the Chancellor of the Exchequer to agree to £20 billion over five years is really impressive. I mean, I can only assume he agreed to watch paint dry with Philip Hammond or whatever it is he does for fun. The NHS needs money, and that is a fact. I mean, treatments are getting smarter and people are getting older, so that is expensive. I mean, it's either stop medical breakthroughs and just stick to plasters for all, or we're going to have to continue to fund things more and more. Broken leg? Oh, just put a plaster on it. That would save money. But... What the NHS is said to need is £50 billion by 2030, which would mean an annual spending increase of just under 4%. And what the Conservatives are proposing is helpful, but it's still only 3.4%, and even then it will all depend on what that 3.4% is being spent on. And that's one of the big questions with this announcement. Where will it go? Is it going to improve the right areas, or will they blow it all on one super expensive hospital radio show where they only play themed music like First Aid Kit and have firework sound effects? I mean, hopefully not, that sounds awful. While there are not many answers yet, and there are unlikely to be till November, May has mentioned that parts of regulatory framework around the NHS are holding back reform, and that she's going to ask clinicians to confirm if they have the right spending targets. All of which could mean that former health secretary and Droopy the Dog stunt double Andrew Lansley, his health reforms could finally be scrapped. Lansley created clinical commissioning groups to replace primary care trusts, which happened in 2012, and they are responsible for the health services and budget in their area. And there's always been loads of criticism of them to do with personal financial initiatives overriding patients' interests, to poor resource management, to an overall lack of uniformity and unnecessary complexity, meaning that they were very hard to make accountable for anything that was wrong with the NHS. So scrapping all of those could be brilliant. 
But Jeremy Hunt is in charge and he believes in homeopathy that junior doctors should work until they're so tired they'll start to feel sleepy before any of their anaesthetised patients and he can't even remember what homes he owns. So who knows what we'll get instead. It could be something that vaguely replaces it, something that does an even worse job or probably just, a bet, a bet it's hospital radio. The other big question, which also is not going to be answered till the budget in the autumn, is just where the £20 billion over five years is going to come from. We know some of it will be from tax increases, which is popular in public opinion, with a recent surveillance poll saying voters want improvements to their local hospitals more than they want tax cuts. And that definitely makes sense. I mean, what use is a tax cut if you can't get it stitched up anywhere? But who will be paying the most tax? Because despite the government insisting austerity is over, wages are still lower than they were 10 years ago, and a tax rise could really hurt lower earners, but in a financial way which is completely unaidable by a fancy new hospital. Then you have the Brexit dividend, which may insist we'll have because we won't be paying into the EU once we leave. Sure, a big bus did say that, and why would a big bus lie? Apart from those buses that had adverts for the Emoji movie on it and swore it was fun. Goddamn liars! Here's the thing, though. The Office of Budget Responsibility gave a forecast for the UK economy post-Brexit, and it was adopted by the Chancellor as the government's own forecast. And that forecast, are you with me? That forecast said the UK would gain £250 million per week, which is a good amount less than the £350 million that the lying bus said. And that money, the £250 million, could go to the NHS, but then if it did, you couldn't spend it on any other services at all, ever, ever, anything. Not bins, not uh, pavements, not lampposts. I can't think of any others. But all those things, you couldn't spend it on that. It would all be on the NHS. But the thing is... None of that, 250 million, when you get that figure, it's not looking at the public finances downgrading, which is saying that post-Brexit will be losing £15 billion a year. Nor is it taking into account that that 250 million that we won't get because it'll just be standing in the corner of a massive debt hole that Brexit made, we also won't get till after the transition period, by which point the government will already have put approximately 12 billion of the funding into the NHS that Mason would come from the source that definitely won't be there. At best, the Brexit dividend is a really nice way of saying, you'll pay for it with your money. I mean, why not start calling your monthly wages a Brexit dividend? That should make it feel better. If you've got kids, let them know their pocket money shall now be referred to as the benefits of leaving the EU. It's all about confidence, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? If we, as a nation, are completely broke post-Brexit, as long as we promise our knock-off fake services are real ones and say everything has been paid for by Brexit dividends, no one will ever know. Tina Fey said that confidence is 10% hard work and 90% delusion, which sounds almost exactly like the British government. That should really be the Conservatives' tagline for the next election. Oh, and it seems social care, capital spending and public health are not going to gain any increase in budget, which means all of them are going to continue to drain resources from the NHS, meaning it'll need more money. But hey, look at me being all Jimmy negative pants. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the government have something up their wizard's sleeve and they know that along with that Brexit dividend, I don't know, May caught a leprechaun while on one of her hiking walks and things are now sorted. And that's what I'll choose to believe, because why would they or a big old bus lie in order just to curry favour with the electorate? Well, I'm sure they wouldn't. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get my own Brexit dividend and spend it on all my favourite things like air, invisible friends and a non-physical border in Ireland. Democracy, from the Greek word demokratia, which means democracy, but, you know, in Greek. 
Democracy has been working for us Western lot for quite a while now. And by that, I mean we all very much enjoy being able to vote for our representatives every five years in order to then complain about how on earth anyone ever voted for those idiots before spending five years being very angry about all the things they're doing before voting them in all over again. Lots of people often remark what kind of democracy we have in the UK when there's questions over how much, say, donors get, or unelected lords, or the media, or the royals, or giant lizard people. The latter of which definitely isn't true, simply because, I mean, lizards in a British climate. Come on, mate. But the fact is, democracy has been pretty much working in the Western world for a few hundred years now. And all in all, it's been deemed preferable to, say, North Korea's authoritarianism, even though, hey, they have lovely parades, or the absolute monarchy of Saudi Arabia, even though, hey, they've got lovely sword dances. But in recent years of reality TV celebrity Kumquat being elected as president of the US, the rise of fake news, the power of Facebook becoming, well, uh, complicated, and populism getting bizarrely popular, are we all still sure that this democracy thing is working for for us. And if it isn't, what on earth do we replace it with? And can we have something with lovely sword parades? How Democracy Ends is the new book by Professor David Runciman, a political historian who is the head of the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge University. He's also the host of the fantastic Observer recommended, like this one, Talking Politics podcast, which I listen to weekly and I feel like it instantly makes my brain grow some. It is always fascinating, insightful, and it gives me a view into politics that, well, I mean, let's be honest, you don't get on this show because I'm far too obsessed with sword dancing and parades. David's book, as it says in the sleeve, surveys the political landscape of the West and shows us how to spot the new signs of trouble ahead. From coups in ancient and modern Greece to nuclear war, environmental catastrophe and the most heinous crimes, Runciman reveals how changes in our societies, now too affluent, too elderly, too networked, make them unlikely to fall apart as they did in the past. Yeah, sounds good, doesn't it? Well... Spoiler, it is, as I finished it a week or so ago and I thought it was a brilliant read, so I was so hugely excited that David was up for coming on this show to have a chat all about it uh, and about why and how democracy could be coming to an end. I should add, I didn't ask him at all about sword dances. Bit of an error there. I do hope, though, that you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. Here is David. I am a big fan of your book, really, really enjoyed it. I found it uh, fascinating, insightful and and oddly uh, sort of hopeful, actually. It made me oddly hopeful, um, I think, about the the, the possibilities of the end of democracy, which I didn't expect to be. uh, The title gives people the wrong impression. (laughs) Yeah, it really really did uh, concern me. I think I just uh, automatically, especially with, I think, the current uh, current way that news and politics seem to be, is it's quite doom-laden and that's what I was expecting. But by the time I... uh, in fact, from the beginning of your book, uh, and especially by the end, I felt uh, uh, a lot like the, like the future is slightly more promising, which is is very nice. Um, and I wanted this. I've got a lot of questions I want to ask you about it, but I thought a good place to start, um, just to give listeners a kind of overview, um, is that uh, you know part of what your book or what your book is about is that re- Western democracy is currently experiencing a midlife crisis. Um, so could you just explain to me what you mean by that and why that's sort of only or primarily for Western? And democracy. Yeah, and I've learned from talking about this book that when you say as a middle-aged man, a midlife crisis is a metaphor they people assume you're talking about yourself and that I'm kind of somehow <laughs> me and I should say I'm as far as I'm aware I'm not. Uh, so it's partly because my book is pushing back against these historical examples we have of democratic failure from the 1930s from the 1970s kind of familiar images that we have when it went wrong in Germany when it's gone wrong in Latin America. And these were all young democracies. And that kind of disaster for democracy, I think, is to do with when democracies are young, in in some ways, the future is really open, but also when it goes wrong, it goes really badly wrong. 
And that's not us, Western democracies. Our democracies have been around for a while. We're quite used to them. In many ways, they're very stable. They've been pretty successful. And for me, the midlife crisis, what it tries to capture is that feeling in the middle of a life where things can still go wrong. But the future isn't wide open. And a lot of what is going wrong are also things that you're attached to because they've served you pretty well in the past. And it has that kind of feel to me where there's this line from uh, psychotherapy, because of people that a lot of people come into therapy saying, I want to change so long as it doesn't mean having to change. And that thing <laughs> that people really want something fresh and something new. And at the same time, they're really reluctant to let go of what they have. And we're in that phase with democracy. The other reason to say it is trying to convey that slightly more hopeful feeling that this isn't for us about like it's democracy or it's the end. And like those aren't the choices. You're in the middle of a story. The end is somewhere out there and everything ends eventually. And we're probably in the, the second half of this. You know, we're in the, the sort of the declining years in many ways, I think, of Western democracy. But masses could still happen. When, when you're in a midlife crisis, it's partly because you're probably aware that death is coming at some point and it freaks you out. But the rest of your life is still to be lived. So there is still that sense, I think, with this, that we're in a massive sort of funk about this. But we have to remember this isn't the end. That's a good way. To, so we're in the Empire Strikes Back uh, of the trilogy at the moment. <laughs> the depressing thing about that is the thought, and actually it does sort of fit with some of the argument in my book, that there is a sort of slightly nightmarish version where we just keep repeating the same thing over and over again because we can't let go. We end up just like with the multiple spin-offs. I hope that's not the that's a, yeah, that is quite terrifying. I, I mean, it's definitely something that uh, it's definitely a people trait, though, isn't it? That we don't like change, and that's something you know that we can see even in kind of the loyalty of how people vote in politics. That they, you know, you still. I think Brexit's changed that quite a bit, but there's still quite a lot of people. I've always voted Labour. I've always voted Conservative simply because they, that's the way that they always have done, and don't want to change that. Yeah, and you, and you see, it. when I say like we're, we're old as democracies, we're also old. I mean, the institutions are old, but also our populations are increasingly. I mean, this is increasingly the advanced Western democracies, crises that are happening in countries where a lot of people are, frankly, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that they have all of these memories, all these patterns of behavior. I think it is true, you see it in our politics now, that for young voters, the options are much wider, and actually they, you know, they don't feel trapped by the past, but they are the minority. I mean, it is one of the features of our democracies, if you compare it to the ones where it really goes hideously wrong, like Weimar Germany. Those were societies mainly of young people. So when the young people decide one thing or the other, everything goes that way. We, I think we see in our politics that a lot of people think that there are many more options out there than we currently have on the table. They tend to be the younger ones, and they get outvoted. They're still getting outvoted. There are too many old people. And that, and, and that is new. I mean, that's part of trying to offer a historical perspective on this. I mean, one of the arguments in my book is that there aren't that many historical comparisons for us to draw on because the kinds of societies we live in haven't been ones like this in human history. And that's one of the features of them. Societies where you have a democracy, so if there are more of you, you win, and there are more old people in our society. And that's never been true ever before. Right, OK, so that's a huge change in just the way that humanity now is, and therefore we need different things in order to deal with that so, so does that mean a kind of because one of the things i wanted to ask you um which which you partly answered there but is you know why is the way that democracy might now end kind of different to ways in which it may have ended before um and i guess one of those then is aging population um is that is that then we we need something new to deal with that this current system doesn't work with 
how people are anymore. I mean, I think one feature of it is that this current system is probably more durable <clears throat> in countries where most people are young, and particularly where there are a lot of young men, you do get a lot more political violence. And the other feature of our democracies, and people probably often find this surprising, but it, I think it is broadly true. There are always exceptions. We live in incredibly peaceful, nonviolent societies in our politics. I mean, of course, there's violence, and there's a, quite a lot of violence online. I mean, there's a lot of violent language. But compared to those periods in history where democracy has fallen apart, actually, this is a very nonviolent form of politics. I partly think that is genuinely to do with the fact that there are relatively few young people, because violence is, a, is basically not just young people, young men, the young man's game. But this is democracy going wrong in places where there isn't a huge amount, certainly, of political violence. What violence there is is more of the name-calling variety than the guns in the streets variety. Where there are more pensioners than there are students. I mean, these are the societies we live in. Where life expectancy extends massively at the top end of the scale. We don't know how long people are going to live for. You haven't just got two generations, you've got three, maybe four generations. It's new. I don't think we know what we need to kind of get out of this or get past this because big breaks that we've had in the past where where basically democracy kind of snaps. It sort of it, you know, falls apart in these really dramatic ways. There are these events, these moments of turmoil where people can see it's gone wrong. This is the slow burn version of it. It's really drawn out. It's protracted. A lot of sort of entrenched behavior that's really hard to shift. And that's new. I mean, the fact that it's kind of slow and old actually is the thing that makes it new. And is that, you know, in a sense, that's, are we kind of in a stage of political stagnation? Because part of me wondered if, if the rise of populism is because, you know, where we are, for example, in the UK, we've, we've got neoliberalism that's still being pushed by the government despite the crash in 2008. But then what, say, Labour offering is socialism, which is something old rather than something new, um, you know, and we, we had quite a lot of apathy re until very recently, I think, with sort of Brexit vote, these, these big kind of change votes that happened. Um, is it that this kind of, you know, this, is this a sort of almost political stagnation that's caused a kind of rise of populism and a, and, a, and a seeking something new as a result of it? I mean, I think it is. I'm not sure it's stagnation because in the end, something always gives. And there is, there is a lot of change around. But really deep-seated, long-lasting change moving much, much harder, I think, than most people expected, including the people who voted for it. And it is partly that thing that... People want change, but they also have lots of things they don't want to stop or give up or row back on. Lots of things are really entrenched. I do also think that we, we're just so used, in a way, to democracy that we almost find it hard to imagine dramatic change. Institutions, these ways we have of doing politics, even the political parties we have, have been around forever, and it's really hard to imagine the alternatives. And part of the trigger for me writing this book was the election of Trump. And I say up front in the book, I don't think Trump is the end of democracy. Lots of things about Trump to be slightly alarmed by, or more than slightly alarmed by. I don't think he's the end by any means. But when Trump was elected, I had this kind of double response, one of which was, oh, my God, what the hell is this? This is you and freak me out. On the other hand, actually, I think people voted for him not because they faith in democracy or they'd given up on it, but almost they had so much faith in democracy. They thought it could survive Donald Trump. You know, they, they kind of, there's that feeling that we can throw things at it, Brexit, Trump, populism, anger, frustration, pretty, you know, pretty violent language of politics. And democracy will sort of absorb it and adapt to it. And that's almost because we are so attached to these institutions 
that we think that they can stand anything. And that's a completely different scenario from the one where we actually come in and we say, we're done with that way of doing politics. We want to do it differently. I don't think we do want to do it differently. We just want to kind of shake it up a bit. That's the stage we're in now. We're in the kind of shaking up bit, but the institutions are still there. They're not, they're not budging. And is that where, because, I mean, I think where, where, you know, with with Trump, we know that there will be another election in four years unless he really goes full on kind of uh, despot. But we, we, you know, the aim is that there'll be another election. He's there for eight years. Fine, democracy can survive it. Eight years and one day, we've got a problem. Yeah, 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 that's it. So it feels like there is at least a limit to what he can do. I mean, with uh, with Brexit, for example, we've, you know, things are shaking up and changing quite drastically as a result of the referendum, but also that was a democratic vote. So would an idea of, say, a second referendum then be subverting democracy? Would that be more dangerous than changing everything? You know, where's the where's the line there? Yeah, and I think the referendum and referendums generally are a really interesting symptom of this in that, there is that, no question, there's that desire actually for more democracy. It's not like those periods in history where people have said, democracy doesn't work, we want the opposite. People aren't saying that, and populism isn't saying that. Populism is people saying, we want our democracy back, we want to rescue it, we want to take it back from the people who've stolen it. Or with referendums, we want more direct democracy, we want more direct input. But we haven't worked out how you combine that with keeping all the other ways of democracy going. You know, the reason British politics is in the mess it's in because no one, not a single person in government or outside government, knows how you combine referendum democracy with parliamentary democracy. There are 10 different ways you could do it, and there are 10 different ways of being played out at the moment. It's, we, we haven't given up on anything. We've just added a referendum to the thing that we already have. That's a classic symptom, I think, of this. We want this radical new way of doing politics alongside all the old ways. And we're kind of trapped with that. And I think... There are ways in which a referendum like the Brexit referendum could have a transformative effect. But you have to be willing to transform the other things too. And we're not. There's not much sign that we are. Even the slogan, take back control, it was kind of, let's do this radical thing in order to restore the thing that we thought we used to have. That's where we are at the moment. Um, And actually, I don't think a second referendum or a third referendum would do anything to resolve that problem. Probably make it worse because second referendum is not an answer to the question, how do you combine referendums, parliamentary democracy? It's just another add-on to that. Yeah, because in your book, I remember you sort of referenced the French Fifth Republic when you were saying that, uh, and I'm going to quote you quite badly, I apologise, but you say that uh, where democracy has popular legitimacy, the people will not remain as bystanders when it is under attack. So uh, if, if that's the, the the rule, if you know, then then I assume that that would be we've got to uphold the results of a vote. But then I wondered if this, you know, we'll see where this Russian interference case kind of goes. If that is considered that that has happened, does that then mean that democracy is under attack in a different way? Where, you know, where will that lead to? Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is a really big part of the problem that we face, which is we we can't even agree on what the signs are that something is broken. And I write about this quite a lot. So I, I talk about coups. You know, a coup is the traditional classic way you know your democracy is done. You wake up one morning government's been arrested, the generals are on TV playing the national anthem, um, and there's a kind of before and after, and it's often overnight. And those things still do happen around the world. There was one in Zimbabwe, and there could easily be one, and there are, I can think of lots of countries where we think that's a serious risk. I don't think it's a risk in Britain, the United States, France, Germany. And yet we're talking about coups all the time. People in America, everyone thinks there's been a coup. You know, the Trump people think that the FBI are staging a coup against him. Hillary supporters think that Trump was the coup against Hillary. 
there's this kind of ratcheting up of the language. It's broken, it's done, it's, it's snapped in half while it carries on. And that's new too. I think that this kind of constant backbeat of noise is democracy doesn't work alongside the continuing functioning of all the democratic institutions means we're lost. And there is a crying wolf problem here, which is, and this is part of the downbeat part of my book, which is to suggest this is a long drawn out process. But when we finally arrive at the point and we go, oh, it really is broken. Well, I've noticed it broke a long time ago. We just didn't pick up on it because we were so busy screaming at each other. <laughs> well, it's it, one of the bits I, uh, I found particularly um, fascinating was your uh, mentioned the US philosopher Robert Nozick, I think, you, um, mm. and who his notion was that the, the true utopia was having political groupings based on um, personal preferences rather than location, which does it feel like we're naturally headed to a kind of ever more individualistic society because, you know, social media kind of groups people across state borders now we have these groupings that could never have happened before yeah and so that's one of the other reasons i just think now is new the trite thing but we forget that digital technology has it's changed the entire backdrop to our politics it's this weird thing that the digital revolution in 30 years has kind of changed everything that the institutions of democratic life it's, so it's like we sort of changed everything around our democracy and then we're trying to run it through the same political system one of the things that it's unquestionably changed, that people can find all sorts of different ways of connecting, identifying new kinds of loyalty. They can experiment in different ways. They can kind of be anarchic and do all of this stuff online, which is what political philosophers always dreamed of, that could transform politics. So for Nozick, it's this sort of libertarian idea that why can't we have a society where you don't have one utopia, we all invent our own utopia work out the thing that would make life paradise for us. We find the people who agree with us, even if there are only three of them, happen to live in different parts of the world, and we connect with them. And that was always a dream, and now it's not quite a dream. And this is all going on at the same time that our democracies are still pretty much carrying on with business as usual. I think something's going to give, and in the book I suggest, you you think through the 21st century, I think it's pretty implausible that this technology is not going to fundamentally catch up with how we do politics too, and something will look very different in 40, 50 years' time. But it's so hard to imagine. I mean, the future, it's not just that the future's open. The future is kind of unknowable for us. The pace of change and also just the range of different ways that we could go. And that's, I think, one of the ironies of our obsession with we might go back to the 1930s, we might, you know, democracy might fail like it failed in the past. The past is just this one story. We're probably at that point in human history where the future is more open than it's ever been. The chances of it being like the past, I think, are really, really slim. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with David in a minute, but first... Yes, I've already mentioned Brexit in this week's show. Yes, there's more of it. I'm sorry. Somebody replied to a tweet that the at Parpolbro account was tagged into, but it was about the Talking Politics podcast because it was about us both being Observer recommended. <clears throat> anyway, um, it said... Love this podcast. Excellent, as covers such a wide range. It doesn't just talk about sodding Brexit. And my heart sank, which is weird, because I've not suffered an adverse condition as a result of that. Because here we are, unavoidably, talking about Brexit again, because there it is, looming in the corner, waiting to arrive like a too-early dinner guest, trying to hide behind the hedge till someone else arrives, because they and you know you only invited them because you had to. So this week, aside from a Brexit dividend that isn't there, the big issue was MPs voting to not have a meaningful vote on the final deal. Voting to not have a vote? Oh, that sounds constructive. I mean, what next? Putting a question forward asking that no one asks any questions? Why not just spend the next year making policies about not having any policies? But as Joseph Heller as it all sounds, the reason Conservative rebels, some Labour MPs and all the rest of them, didn't vote for a meaningful vote is because the Prime Minister offered to make a government amendment to remove the need for MP Dominic Greaves' amendment. Ahead of the vote, May promised rebels that Greaves' call for MPs to have a greater say on a Brexit deal would be taken on board. But it then turned out that she meant taken on board one of Chris Grayling's trains because, that's right, it was cancelled before it arrived. Last minute changes meant that rather than guarantee MPs get to have a say on the final deal, it just means if there's no deal reached by February 2019, then MPs will get to note the position the government are taking. Yeah, that's it. They get to sit back, do a little doodle or a phone tapping or pop down a note so that years later they can just look back on it and go, oh, I mean, writing by milk would be more useful. It's a move that makes Parliament entirely redundant, though to be fair, for some of them that would be suitable karmic treatment. But mostly it is just scary. After May went back on her word, it was reported that one Tory rebel said, if she F asterisk asterisk KS us, she's F asterisk asterisk KED. I mean, it clearly says if she's fucks us, she's fucked. But I've been reading that as funked. If she funks us, she's funked. And then pretending they're all in George Clinton's Parliament Funkadelic. And trust me, it makes things ever so slightly better. Anyway, Greavesy is well angry about it, as are other Tory rebels like Sarah Wollaston and Anna Subri. You know the ones, all the ones that regularly get angry about all the things the government do, but then still vote with them because May clearly has some dodgy pics of them in Crocs while at the supermarket or something. Labour also backed Dominic Grieve on this and they want a meaningful vote too. But the government know that if this happens, it essentially stops the possibility of a no deal. You know, the no deal. The worst case scenario where, according to the recent leaked report, we'll all run out of food, medicine, airplanes and Netflix within about two weeks. And why do the government want to risk that? Because Brexiteers want to risk that. And why do Brexiteers want to risk that? Uh, because, uh, ah, where is that? Where is that Tina Fey quote again? Was it 
delusion. Anyway, this has gone back to the Lords again, though, and the Lords have now said that there has to be a meaningful vote on the final deal, and then they've pinged it back over to the Commons with a swift backhand serve, and so this is going to be debated in the Commons all over again next week. The new amendment, now that the Lords have had their hands all over it, means that MPs have to have a meaningful emotional and spiritual vote. Okay, not emotional and spiritual, but they have to have a meaningful vote, right? If MPs vote down the UK-EU Brexit deal, if May announces before 21st January 2019 that no deal has been struck, or if 21st January next year passes and May ain't said shit, which is well suspect. If any of those things happen, then a minister would have to make a statement in Parliament. And now, the Lords Amendment says MPs would have to approve on that. And if they don't, as Grieve has said, they could collapse the government. Although, I'm not really sure how, as May looks very unfoldable. So that was just one lot of amendments on the EU withdrawal bill that everyone had to vote on after just 12 hours debate because that's what they voted to do. I mean, why not get it done right? Why spend too much time on the future of the country when Love Island's on? That total lack of time, though, meant that a lot of stuff wasn't discussed properly, including only 15 minutes that was given for MPs to decide whether to go ahead with the bill allowing Westminster to act on certain devolved issues without Hollywood, the Welsh Assembly or the Northern Irish Assembly, when there is one's approval. The lack of time spent on that caused the SNP MPs to storm out en masse of Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, something that finally made it interesting for once and made me wonder why SNP MPs bother showing up in the first place when most weeks you could just watch a repeat anyway. There was an emergency debate on validity of the Sewell Convention today in the Commons, so-called because Lord Sewell was one of the authors of the original devolution settlement, and the government won that, which now means that post-Brexit they can all tamper all they like with various bits of usually devolved policies when they relate to the EU withdrawal bill. SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon is goddamn furious as though that the voices and views of the Scottish Parliament have been completely cast aside, though with the government as unashamedly English as they currently are, I'll be surprised if they understood anything Holyrood said in the first place. Lastly, ill pug in a shirt, Aaron Banks, and his sidekick Andy, what if Mark Armand was a racist, Wigmore, were grilled by the Department of Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee about their connections to Russia and the influence of Russia on the Brexit vote. The hearing was really weird, and they did things like accuse Parliament of being fake news despite them sitting in it, before then admitting that the advice they were given before the referendum was, it's not about facts, it's about emotion. But my favourite bit about Banks and Wigmore acting like total arsehole louts was that at one point they both got up and left to go to lunch without warning, which I think, on the whole, is very European of them. There's so much more to uncover about what involvement and influence they, Russian finances and Cambridge Analytica had in the Brexit referendum vote, but for now, I just hope that as Banks described himself to the committee as an evil genius with a white cat that controls Western democracy, that hopefully this will all end with him getting dumped in a smokestack by a suave Roger Moore lookalike. Ah, it's also fun, isn't it? And by fun, I mean not fun. It'd be really nice to not talk about sodding Brexit, but it has put a halt to almost all other areas of UK politics. I do keep hearing from ardent Brexiteers that all we have to do is be more positive about it all, and my problem with that is that is the least British thing I've ever heard. I mean, you want proper British sovereignty and values? Then let us, as a country, all endlessly point out just how shit it's all very likely going to be before expecting rain on a bank holiday. And anyone who doesn't understand that clearly doesn't want what's best for the country. And now, back to David. Is it then at all possible to, you know, is is it at all possible for anyone to do anything now that's kind of future-proofing politics? Because, uh, and again, one of the things you sort of mentioned quite a lot in your book was about basically how technology is such a massive game-changer, um, whether it's kind of about uh, distribution of information, fake or real, and, and the threat of automation. Is it at all, you know, how could anyone possibly put politics in place that will 
deal with that now? Do you think, you know, uh, is everyone thinking too short term or is it, but is it possible to think long term? I think one of the challenges for democracies, particularly the kind of democracies that we have, is that they're not very good at the future. Um, I think the historical record of democracies is what they're really, really good at doing is adapting to challenges when they're right squarely in front of them, whether it's an economic crisis or a war, challenge to the way that the economy works. When a democracy faces a choice, it can often take it because democracies are good at when they have to, changing. These long-term trends, whether it's automation, what this technology might do to what we mean even mean by work, things like threats to the environment, long-term changes to patterns of human behavior. I don't think there's any evidence that democracies are good at future proof. They kind of, they need to see it in front of their eyes and then they'll adapt. One of the real difficulties, I think, for Western democracy thinking 50 years ahead is that we might be moving into a world though things are happening very quickly. There isn't that kind of moment of truth, the moment where the robots arrive, the moment where we suddenly realize we have to adapt, whether it's climate, whether it's technology. The classic thing that democracies were really, really good at adapting to, war. Or weirdly, even though democracies are great recipe for peace, they're really good at war because they're really adaptable and they're really good at kind of rising to the challenge. What if the challenge isn't the kind of challenge you can rise to because it's this kind of slow burn, boiling frog challenge? That, again, could be new. It could be different. And I think it's at least possible that we will spend not just the next two or three years, but maybe the next 20 or 30 years treading water while these incredible changes are going on around us. And that's a that's a different scenario from anything that we've seen in the past. Yeah, it's very hard to be reactive to something that's sort of slowly slipping away or slowly disappearing as opposed to something that's immediately changing. Yeah. We almost overcompensate. I think this is part of the current rhetoric of politics. The anger, the name-calling, the sort of tribal, partisan nature of it. We're looking for the thing that is the, the unequivocal symbol we all know our world is changing fast. I think a lot of us, I would include myself in this, a lot of us find the future uh, really unnerving. Uh, when you think about your kids, what life will be like for them in 30, 40 years' time. It's not just that traditionally in democracies, each generation needs to believe the next generation will have it better, and that may be over. It's really hard to imagine what some fundamental things like work, or education, or health will mean for our kids or our grandkids. So we're looking for the thing that gives us security. And one of the things that could give us security is kind of being able to name the problem and scream at it, or be able to name the villain and scream at the villain. You find the person or the thing that we can focus on as our problem. And the trouble is, we can't agree on that. We can all find a villain, probably, and we can all find an issue that we think is the issue. But it's not the same for us, because we all have these different experiences. There is a lot of screaming and a lot of people looking for evil enemy but it's not like a war because we don't agree who the enemy is sure it's too many gray and that, and that was again one of the things i found very interesting we were discussing now how conspiracy theories are, are, are given by both winners and losers which very much yeah. blurs the line into, as to how they were used previously yeah, and trump i mean tr- trump is different in lots of ways i mean we, we shouldn't downplay it so he's not the end of democracy but he sure is something new um he's i think as far as I know, he's the first full-blown conspiracy theorist to occupy the White House. And he's also, I think, the first person who really built an entire political campaign on conspiracy. He started 
his run for the presidency by calling out Obama as a non-American citizen, the birth movement where people said the birth certificate was fake. That was Trump's entry point into American politics. And he's ridden that all the way through. And he's carried on behaving like that in office. You know, he's the first winner of an election without the result because he claimed that you know, the, it was fixed because Hillary fixed the popular vote. He's behaving in office like he lost because that kind of loser mentality, which is what it is, you know, conspiracy theories are for losers in the sense people who feel disadvantaged, disenfranchised, the world doesn't work for them, try and find a plot that explains it. But Trump's the first politician that I've ever seen, there are echoes of it in other places in the world, in Turkey, Erdogan, Orban in Hungary, but in the Western democracy we live in, we're familiar with, who is behaving like that in office. And that is new too. And it's quite scary. I mean, it, it doesn't really make sense to behave as the winner as though you'd lost. Yeah, it's, I mean, he's, he regularly surprises. And I, I find it, it's amazing how every week I'm both unsurprised and surprised by what he's doing at the same time. Um, it's a bit, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I, I describe my reaction to his inauguration. We watched it. I watched it with some students here, that inaugural address, very short. But, the, but when I saw it in real time, genuinely, I found it terrifying. And actually, I did hear the echoes of fascism and the symbolism. It was just... I think a lot of us came into the room thinking, how bad could this be? And then, like, oh, my God. And then we watched it again. So we literally, we finished watching it, and then we watched it again. Not live, but just 15 minutes after live. And even the second time I watched it, I thought, oh, I slightly overreacted there. It's not that bad. I was already sort of attuned to, and had already inflated my view of the fact that man's a fascist. And I thought, oh, he's not really a fascist. As I say in the book, that 15-minute experience that's been my experience and a lot of people's experience of the entire Trump presidency. Like you simultaneously, like you say, you hear the thing that scares you and you kind of think, yeah, it's Trump. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's... It could send us mad. I mean, it could send us mad. That's definitely a possibility. Well, it's, it's such an endless stream of things, isn't it? You don't have time to really think things through. And I, and I wonder, I mean, that's what I really liked about the, even the first few pages of your book where you point out that democracy can survive Trump made me sort of breathe a sigh of relief and go, oh, of course it can. I don't think I'd even give myself a brain space to think that. Um, and do you think it kind of helps, you know, from your point of view, from, from an academic point of view, do you think it helps to deal with the state that democracy's in rather than kind of the endless headline panic that people endure? Do you find it easier to kind of view these times uh from from your position or you know is it something that we should all be kind of taking more of a breath over yeah i mean so i'm basically a historian and a lot of historians often it's one of the things that makes historians really boring and annoying they kind of feel like that longer view gives you a bit of perspective on this democracies have been through similar or even worse challenges i do have that strong sense as a historian that we sometimes forget how lucky we are in many ways how prosperous, how peaceful. And the fact that we're all living longer is a good sign. It means that we're healthier, better off. You know, a long life is better than a short life. But there is that kind of historian's perspective, which is slightly dangerous because if everyone thinks like that, no one does anything. We all kind of wait for it to right itself or we wait for the wheel of history to turn. And frankly, you know, when Trump's in office, when politics is as it is, when there are these these long-term threats that could really do for all of us, if we're all just sitting twiddling our thumbs waiting for the storm to pass, the storm won't pass. But there's always that balance, and it is really difficult. And I think academics should always be really conscious of our little ivory towers. There we are saying, oh, you know, we've seen this before. 
can't have everyone thinking like that. It's really, really dangerous. And you absolutely do need people to be completely freaked out by this because democracy is a, you know, it's, it's a contest. It's about winners and losers. You, gotta, you don't, haven't got to just win elections. You've actually got to win the news cycle. You've got to grab people's attention. And the thing about Trump, whatever else you want to say about him, whatever his deficits are, his deficiencies, he has got a remarkable skill set for what people, I think, are now starting to call the attention economy, which is you know, a world in which the most precious thing is attention. And I had a moment in the last couple of weeks during the kind of G7 John and Korea week, whatever that week was, last week. Yeah, two, two weekends but, ago, yeah. Well, you know, there's that feeling. So it is, I think it is measurably true now that Trump is the most famous human being who has ever lived in terms of name recognition around the world. So he's the head of Jesus and William Shakespeare. Um, more people in the world know who Trump is, which is an amazing thought. And he's a, he's a narcissist, so that's also not a good thing. He's a narcissist. still the most famous human being in history. And he just sucks up our attention. You know, the amount of time, even if you just I sometimes just look at the New York Times or Real Clear Politics or one of those sites that kind of aggregates news, and just scan it and just look for the word Trump, and you kind of feel he's eaten the world. He's just kind of... He hasn't just wormed his way into our heads. He's literally kind of consumed the headspace that we have to think about other things. That's dangerous. And we need people to be really pushing back. And you can't push back by just switching off. I mean, that's one way you can push. But if we all switch off, he will just colonize the space that's left. So there's, there's a huge challenge for us. But then, you know, to go back to where we started, the middle life crisis is, is a challenge, right? You know, you, you've got, this is serious. It's like, it's potentially dangerous. It's not, you can't just in, in middle age think, yeah, well, work itself out. Because it won't. And one day you will be dead. So you've got to take it seriously. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's exhausting. I think that's the problem, isn't it? It's just exhausting mm. and relentless. And, and, he, and he has more stamina. I mean, that's the other scary thing about him. He's this old guy. He doesn't look to me in great health. But I think a really neglected political gift is the ability to keep going. Like if you outlast people, even if you can keep talking longer, certainly if you can kind of command people's attention longer, and he is relentless. I think you know people joke about him tweeting at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. There is something about that guy where if this is a contest just about who is going to be talking when the other people have shut up, he's winning. Well, wow. that's uh, I mean, it's, that's both depressing, but also from a stand-up comedian's point of view, really hopeful because I can do hour shows uh, off the cuff, so we're fine. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about sort of looking to future possibilities. There's um, you talk about uh, pragmatic authoritarianism and epistocracy, which um, both found very interesting. I'd love to talk to you about but this. I don't want to take up your whole day, um, but I wanted to ask about deliberative democracy and randomly selected representative groups. Do you think there's any way forward with that, or do you think People don't want that level of responsibility anymore. Yeah, I think so. I've, I've done some sort of events around this book and talked to people about it. And one or two people have raised this issue that when I go through the possibilities, I don't take seriously enough. There's kind of pretty radical alternative, which is against direct democracy, but not the kind of crude referendum device, which is, you've seen it. It's a very, very crude way of doing it, asking an either or question to 50 million people and trying to live with the result. There are ways of involving people in politics directly, which are more open-ended, more like an actual conversation, more about not what's the decision that people take, but having them talk about it before they take it, which is liberative democracy. 
And I think people for a long time, and it's quite a, certainly in the sort of academic world, it's been a long-standing hope that democracy could move more in that direction. And there are lots of things to be said for it. When people talk, when they communicate, when they discuss, tend to come to better, more reasoned conclusions. But no one's really worked out how to scale it up. I mean, that's a huge challenge. And I sort of talk a bit, maybe a bit dismissively, I'm not sure, I'm sort of aware of the criticism in the book about various kinds of local experiments. You can do it at the local level, even at the city level. You know, there's really exciting stuff happening in Stockholm and Barcelona and Reykjavik. And I say, that's great, but they kind of that's where they would do that kind of thing. How are you going to get that to work in a country like the United States or Great Britain? And a lot of democracy still happens to scale. But I, I think I shouldn't be too dismissive about that. I mean, it may be that that has to be an important part of the future. Maybe this technology does open up ways of doing that that we haven't really thought about yet. But I do, again, this is slightly that sort of historian's perspective. I think one of the difficulties is there are lots of interesting experiments going on with democracy. They tend to be quite small scale. And big democracy, you know, nation state level democracy, seems to be really, really resistant. It's, you know, while people are doing all the exciting stuff, it just plows on. I think we've got to find a way of making that connection. We might. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen how you get from Reykjavik and Barcelona to Spain, America, Britain. Yeah, it's. I, I. I also have a slightly more cynical worry in that I just, you know, I. To example, to try and get even people to re- review your podcast is difficult enough. I can't imagine getting them to sit down and yeah. discuss politics. And, so far. Yeah, part of that point about if this is the attention economy, the most precious commodity is not money; it's time. Yes, yeah, that's probably not true. Actually, I think money still is what matters, and for most people, uh, you know, they definitely need more money. But a lot of people feel strung out both financially and just in terms of the 24 hours in the day. And if you're going to say to them, well, the solution to your sort of your standard of living problems and everything else is to devote a lot more time to politics, they're not going to buy it. I mean, that seems like adding to the problem, not solving the problem. Is there a way of doing kind of speed dating deliberative democracy? You see, that as soon as you start to think like that, you think you're, you're losing the point of it. You actually, you know, there are ways you could do it, which is just like replicating the problem that we have. If you get people to have really, really quick conversations about politics, they're just going to insult each other because that's what people do. You've got to slow it down. And the world's speeding up. Uh, it's tough. Yeah, that is very tough. Um, I Well, I, I, I did find, I found your book, uh, you know, I, I think affirming in that, uh, and I, no spoilers for listeners, obviously, but, uh, but you know, I feel like by the end of it uh, that we know that humanity will continue somehow uh, and, and politics will continue somehow. Um, and, and I wanted to ask just one question that I ask all of um, our guests on this podcast, um, and I'm aware that your book has a massive further reading section, so I don't want to step on that. Um, but apart from your book and the Talking Politics podcast, are there any specific uh, political historians, analysts, uh, podcasts or tweeters that you would recommend for listeners to look to as to where we might be heading next politically? Any of your favorites i think this is definitely a kind of golden age for not just for podcasting but there is just an unbelievable amount of really interesting writing out there and i get overwhelmed by it again it's this challenge of sort of thinking a day so many things i'd love to read or listen to and it's so hard to do it um i do think there are lots of fantastic history books that aren't those Ashes and the warning from history books, but actually kind of try and tell the deep story. So there's a brilliant one. It's not in my further reading by someone called Ara Katz Nelson called Fear Itself, which is to try and tell the story of 
the last great crisis of American democracy in the 1930s, how America got out of it. Really deep, really interesting story about war, race, politics, and technology. One of those kind of historians' books that makes you simultaneously see we have lived this before, and we really haven't even come close to living what we went through before. But that's a, I think that's a really great book. And I think there are lots of history books that just go a bit beyond what we'd look for at the moment, which is that sort of, we find the thing in the past that reminds us of us. And any history book that isn't a warning from history, it'll be better than the one that is. Thank you so much to David for having the time to chat to me. I'm such a huge fan of his podcast, Talking Politics, and honestly, I couldn't recommend it enough for a weekly dose of really fascinating political discussion. Uh, I always feel like I'm downloading knowledge and insights into my brain with every single listen. Talking Politics can be found on Facebook at Talking Politics Podcast. Uh, they are at TPPodcast underscore on Twitter, and their website is TalkingPoliticsPodcast.com. And they're also hosted on Acast, like this show, so you can find their page on there too. And the podcast is, of course, available on all of your favourite pod apps. So do check that out if you don't already. Uh, David's book, How Democracy Ends, which, again, I have to say I hugely enjoyed and I found it clear and insightful and oddly life-affirming in a weird way. Um, it is available at all bookshops. And who am I to judge if they are good or bad? I mean, if they sell books, is that not automatically some good points? Are they not automatically a good bookshop? Would a bad bookshop not be one where you go in, ask for a book, and they say, I'm sorry, we only sell goats. No one wants that. Bad bookshop. Sorry, anyway, I mean, go buy David's book, listen to his podcast. They're all brilliant. As always, if you have anyone you'd like me to try and interview or a subject you think I should find someone to interview about, don't keep it to yourself. Let me know. And you can do that via the contact form on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, the Facebook group, the Parpol Bro Twitter, or just email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could replace all the letters of every tin of alphabetic spaghetti with just the letters that spell out your preferred guest's name, and I'll fail to notice them as on the rare occasion I buy alphabetic spaghetti, I usually put them on toast and cover them in so much cheese that even the meal has a heart attack. So again, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Tar for your oral receptings. And don't forget to review this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Podhole, Sound Trousers, Cast Weasel, or any others I've just made up. If you can afford to donate to the show to allow me to spend more time making it less shit, then please do chuck me at least $1 at the Patreon page or buy me a coffee at the Ko-fi page. Links for both are at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk. Big thanks to Acast for adopting us into their home for peculiar pods and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the tunage. And as I mentioned earlier, his his new album Under the Patio is available to pre-order in all of the music places all of them yeah even that one and that one you're thinking of and that one as well but not Tidal Tidal shit this show will be back next week when Theresa May insists she can fund the NHS by turning lead into gold while refusing to answer questions on why 10 civil servants won't stop vomiting bye this week's show is brought to you by Brexit Dividends, the all-purpose gift voucher for any occasion. Not sure what to buy a loved one, relative, someone at work whose name you can't quite remember and really don't want to use up the brain space to try? Get them a Brexit Dividend Voucher, able to be used anywhere your imagination will take you. Do you want to buy candy floss in Neverland? With Brexit Dividend, you can. Want to purchase a stuffed mount of Aslan's head on your next trip to Narnia? Pay for it with Brexit Dividend Vouchers. Do you need some pens from WH Smiths? We can't help you if you try to pay with Brexit dividends. They'll just get security. Brexit dividends because imagination has no limits, unlike actual money.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.